So a few days ago, I took to social media to announce that the topic of my next book is Tupac Shakur, the lay rapper and a man whose life has fascinated me for years. And in the past, I always kept booked subjects to secret. It's the paranoid writer in me. What if people find out? What if someone steals it? I gotta be quiet about this. But with age and with experience, I've dropped much of that. When you share a topic, people begin to feel as if they're along for the journey. It becomes a community with shared stories and memories and experiences. So yeah, Tupac is book number 11, and I couldn't be more excited. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Jesse Washington, the journalist, author, and documentary filmmaker who serves as a senior writer for ANSI. And Jesse's career has been a riveting ride from the Poughkeepsie Journal to the Associated Press to Vibe to Blaze. Hell, he even had Wyclef pull a gun on him. And how many people can say that? This is episode number 293. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Jesse. Last night at about uh, three in the morning, I just read through all your clips and I was thinking you might be the hardest guest I've ever had because you've had this super a million different elements career of journalism. You've worked at different places. You've had different experiences all across the map. And this is what I came to. This is what I actually came to. So when I was um, back in New York in the 90s, my roommate was the editor of Slam magazine. And that was around the time when Double XL started which for people who don't know is a hip hop magazine that came along probably around 97, 98. I don't know. A great magazine. And I was thinking like double XL comes along and sort of the idea is our people need a voice. And here's, here are stories that you're going to read that are going to interest sort of our people and our stuff. You're not reading in the mainstream media and the undefeated came along 2015. Sort of the idea was here are stories you're going to read that you're not going to read about this in the Washington post and New York times. And you were at the source. You were at Blaze Magazine. You're at Undefeated now, which is now um, Anscape. You were there during the rise of really great hip hop magazines. Do you feel like this idea that we're going to tell stories that you're not going to read elsewhere has worked out? Do you feel like the stories have been told? Do you feel like the purpose has been served or not? Yeah, I love that question. And I do think it's worked out. It's definitely worked out for me. <laughs> you know, I mean, I feel so fortunate in the career that I've had because I get to immerse myself in things that I care about, hip hop, basketball, black empowerment. And so there are platforms, outlets, magazines, whatever they're, you know, the, the word of the month is where they want that from me. I occasionally got to do it when I worked at the Associated Press or when I worked at, you know, any of these other mainstream things. I could do it sometimes, but I couldn't really do it with my full energy and attention. So I think it has worked out because these platforms give people like me and my colleagues who aren't always black, by the way, Mm -hmm. a chance to really tell stories that they feel deeply through their own lens in a way that's authentic to us. You know, us journalists, you, we know that there's a million ways that the, the, your story can be knocked off kilter or the tone is changed and it can just 
kill you. You know, Jeff, I've heard you talk about how when someone would change a word and in your story, you said that ruined the whole story. You know, right. um, well, sometimes it can, man, especially if you're dealing with white folks who don't understand black people or maybe they want to understand them, but they're just still stuck in this way of telling a story that's not authentic. So I do think it's worked out. And definitely for me, I think I've gotten to tell stories, not only the subject itself, but the way it's told and reported and written in a way that I would not have gotten to do in some of my, you know, I love working in the Associated Press, but I would never get to tell it that way there. It's funny. I've told this story before, but when I was at Sports Illustrated, I, I did a story on a baseball player named Derek Bell. He played for the Mets and he lived on a boat in New York City. And I wrote about him and he was really into rap. A fact checker called me and sort of embarrassed. And she's like, Peter Carey, who is an older editor, has a question and I have to ask. I'm really sorry. He wants to know if it's hip hip music or hip hop music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could have. See, you're going to have a hard time, quote unquote, keeping it real with guys like that mucking up the works. You know what I'm well, saying? It's funny because I've been researching a lot of nineties lately for a project I'm working on and you actually see it more than I remember because maybe I wasn't paying attention reading newspaper articles. And like, I read an article just the other day in from like 96 where they were talking about gangster rap and they were referring to Coolio and hammer as quote unquote gangster rappers. Oh my God. I was like, so you worked, you, you start out at the AP, you were there for a good, good chunk of time. How badly was black culture mangled by the media? And how much do you see it still being mangled? Oh, man, it was horribly mangled. It was mangled every day. It was misrepresented, dumbed down, watered down, you know, you name it. I mean, when I was growing up, uh, rap music was despised is not too strong a word. Um, black stations despise rap music, you know. When I was growing up, the only time you could hear rap on the radio in New York City, the birthplace of rap, was from 9 p.m. to midnight, Friday and Saturday night. Mr. Magic and Molly Mall, two stations. So we had uh, three, six, not 12 hours of rap a week that we, <laughs> that, we, that we could get. And now it's everywhere. So not that rap and hip hop is black culture, but there were so few of us working in the media um, and so few of us in management positions, even fewer management positions. And then the lens for everything was just white. Now the lens is different because um, uh, black culture has been uh, gentrified. And it's still, I'll never forget, Jeff, the first time I saw the New York Times. You remember uh, the on language column? It was, sort of, it was sort of this big deal. And uh, he put the word props in the on language column in the 90s sometimes. And I was like, oh my God, what is happening? Um, and you saw it little by little, these black things getting into mainstream culture and being more accepted and then gentrified and co-opted. And now it sort of infuriates me the level at which it happens and the speed at which it happens. Like this whole thing with the gritty now, right? The okay. gritty has gone from this cool dance that John Morant did and a lot of other people and kids on the internet to now being mangled and, and just done stupidly by people who should not be doing the gritty, let alone on an NFL broadcast. And so... You know, that's the arc that I see. I don't think it's misrepresented as much now because of the existence of places like, you know, my current outfit and all these other black platforms that just normalize it and make it part of the baseline so that people understand this is how they have to do it. Um, one of my colleagues, John Gotti, has a great, his social media, he posts all these 90s headlines and magazine articles. And you can see they didn't even know how to write the headlines. Like they didn't know the language. But now everybody knows the language because it's everybody's language. And so we do better now 
than we did back then. But back then when I was coming up, it was, it was horrendous. And it were it not for the source and, and all of these other magazines and XXL, um, then I think it would have taken us another decade to just, we'd still be stuck where we were then. Do you feel like the world is better off with someone mangling the gritty or example? I remember when I was at SI and they put fat PHAT on the cover and they did it like (laughs) three years too late. Right. But it was still like for SI, it was like, whoa, they just use fat. Right. Like, are we better served with these sort of things that are originated in hip hop culture at least being mangled as opposed to being ignored or would you rather they just be ignored and untouched? I'd rather they get it right. Yeah. Like hire some people who know how to use it. Hire some, hire some people who know when you're looking stupid and when you're looking cool, like, okay, I'm 53 years old. And in my day I had it going on, but I'm 53 years old and I'm very cognizant of the fact I got kids who are teenagers, young twenties, like they're the cool ones now. I can't try to do that. I can't try to use their lingo and then give them a wink and a nudge. No, dad, you're played out. You're embarrassing me. So you got to know your role, man. You got to know, play your position. And my position right now is OG who's not going to try and do the gritty in public. You know what I'm saying? And so that's that's how these, the, the, these journalism outlets have to operate, I think. Just don't embarrass yourself, man. Hire some black people. They'll give you a good sense of, and not just black people, women, Latinos, Asian Americans, you name it. And just, if you have a diverse environment, then you won't embarrass yourself when you'd be able to be appropriate for what you're doing and use the right language and tone and style rather than just trying too hard. I just want to say you and I are about the same age and my kids are giving me nonstop shit about anything I put on Instagram. Number one, (laughs) dad, you use it way too much. Number two, dad, stop using filters. I'm like, I'm 50 years old. I'm allowed to not be cool. You know, like it's very hurtful. No, we're deliberately, you have to understand, we, you know, we have to embrace the fact that we're not cool anymore. And once we're comfortable with that, that we can just be ourselves, man. There's nothing more embarrassing than a man in his fifties trying to be, be cool. And, uh, you know, so that's, you know, just don't go there. Don't, if your kids are making fun of you though, I'm right there with you, man. You're in a good zone. Solidarity. Thank you. May 30th, 1987. The Poughkeepsie Journal headline, bombers defuse Rhinebeck, but Indians are still alive. The byline, Jesse Washington for the journal. Yes, sir. The lead, the Pine Plains High School bombers handed Rhinebeck High School the first loss of the season in the section one class C softball finals at Rhinebeck on Thursday. The bombers captured the first game of the best of two out of three series, eight to one behind the strong starting pitching of Priscilla Kennedy. All right, it's 1987. Yes. This, this is the first byline I could find. I don't know if that is your first byline, but it's the first byline I could find of yours. What um, month? Uh, it was May 1987. Yeah, I had just got there. Okay, keep going. Well, I'm not going to read more of the genius, but my question is... Oh, how what? This... You're going to deprive them of this this Hemingway of a story? Okay. If you, you know must. what, Jesse? The second <laughs> game of the doubleheader is interrupted. The top of the <laughs> no, six stop. Spare me. no. <laughs> Well, he didn't tell me there was a thunderstorm with Rhinebeck leading seven to five. The game would be resumed on uh, one. All right. You're this kid in Poughkeepsie. Yeah. Um, I'll throw a big softball at you. How did this happen? How did this journalism thing happen for you? Yeah, man, I had a friend who worked there. Like most people get jobs. And that's, you know, whenever people ask about how I get started, like, yeah, I had ability. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was smart. But were it not for connections 
then that opportunity, that internship at the Poughkeepsie Journal, which is what started me on this career path, I wouldn't even have known about it. And so I always tell all the young people, like, and also the people who do the hiring, like, you don't know everybody who's out there. Like, we have to understand that so many people get these opportunities just through people they know. It falls into their lap. It fell into my lap because I had a white friend who was the advertising director of the Poughkeepsie Journal. He said, Jess, you play ball. You like to read. You might be interested in this internship. And I was, and it turned into a career. So that's how it happened. I just showed up. I was doing the agate, you know, taking the, the calls over the phone about the results. And then maybe a week into my job, they said, oh, go cover this game. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> they said, go there and write about it. And I was decent at it. You had just graduated from Yale at this point? No, I was, I had just graduated from high school. This was my freshman year at Yale. So this was the summer of your freshman year, your home, and this is basically an intern. Were you making money from the Poughkeepsie Journal? Yeah, right? man, I was making big money, Jeff. Big money. Any money to me was big money. So I lived in the projects, Eastman Residences, shout to Eastman Residences, which was about three blocks from the newspaper. And, you know, I walked to work um, and there was a very formative location in between the Poughkeepsie Journal and my house. It was Tubman Terrace Basketball Court. And that's where two things happened that that really shaped who I am today. Number one, they played ball there. They, you know, that's where they hooped. And all the best players would come there. Sometimes the dudes from Beacon would come up. We'd have intercity clashes, Newburgh, you know, whatever. Um, and then also they would have park jams there. They would plug turntables in and people would DJ. And so that was, um, I was uh, 17. I had just turned eight. I, I was 17 years old when I wrote that story. I turned 18 on June 3rd of 87. Um, and, uh, and that was my life going to the newspaper, going to write these stories and hanging out at the park that was midway in between my projects and the Poughkeepsie Journal. You know, it's weird. I found, I'm not kidding about this. I'm going to show you. I found this from 1983 and is an announcement of the Oakwood School Scholarships. Right? <laughs> with a little Yo. Jesse Washington with a pretty sweet little fro going on there. And I just want to say, I think this is kind of fucked up, but you may not feel this way. It's basically announcing that you got this scholarship in the newspaper, the amount of money you got for the scholarship. If I were a kid, I don't know how I'd feel about this being in the newspaper. I'd be like, wait, what was really? the amount of money? It's one full tuition award for a one day student, 4725. So 4725, which is really good, obviously. It's kind of weird to put that out there in the paper. Not that you got a scholarship, but here's the amount of money we're giving this kid, and now he can attend our school. Like a little weird. Well, I don't know if this is a flex on your part, Jeff, about your research skills, which I already had an immense amount of respect for. However, that this item has escaped my number one archivist, my mom, shout out to my mom, Judy Washington. She does not have that in her possession. So the fact that you do is amazing. Um, and then my mom probably would have been great and very happy to have it in the newspaper for her son. I mean, it was it was a lot of things in my life have happened by accident and so random. And so um, I went to uh, I went to Poughkeepsie Day School. So I was academically precocious. I had skipped the third grade, I think, and went straight from the second to the fourth. And so I was young and I, and my parents had always managed to we had no money, but they would talk me into these schools and I would go for free. So I was going and not public school, but usually these private schools. So I was going to Poughkeepsie Day School and my best friend was getting ready to go to Oakwood because his parents was the headmaster there. And they, they were like, Hey, show up on Thursday and take this test. You might get a scholarship. And I took the test. They were like, okay, you could come here for free. 
okay, cool, boom, I'll go. So that was how that worked out, you know? Um, but I don't think a lot of people in the Eastman projects were, were reading or were like, oh, Jess has money now. <laughs> I don't actually mean it that way. I'll tell you what I remember. So I grew up in a town, super, super conservative, nowadays, super, super Trumpy. And mm -hmm. I was, you know, cliche. I'm super cliche alert here. My best friend was one of the two African-American kids in my grade. He introduced me to hip hop, blah, 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 the whole thing, right? Yeah. Whenever that kid would get anything, his name was John Powell or the other African-American kid, Larry Glover, or the one Hispanic girl in the class, Lisa Hernandez. There would always be people who would be like, well, they just got that because so-and-so. Like I have vivid memories of them getting college acceptance day. Well, they just got in because of so-and-so. They just got in oh, because yeah. of so-and-so. Yeah, and I could yeah. easily picture in my little racist town, oh, of course, Jesse Washington's here. He got the scholarship. They gave him money. Of course they gave him money. Why didn't they give me the money? They gave him the money because he's a black guy, blah, blah, blah. And I feel like that's something I grew up observing. And my Jewish liberal parents made me very aware of it. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that's something that really infected where I grew up. And that is what huh. I thought when I saw the announcement of how much money you got in a scholarship. That's interesting. So number one, I'm glad that your parents made you aware of that. And it's a very real thing. And I'm glad that you're aware of it. A lot of people, more people need to be. No, I got that when I went to Yale. When I went to Yale, everyone just said, oh, you, you know, you got in just because you're black. Not because I was valedictorian, not because I never got any grade other than an A, not because I was the captain or the president of everything. Um, and so, so, you know, that, that came later. Uh, but I think, you know, it's funny. And I was known my, my, my identity up until I got to be halfway decent at basketball was of the smart kid. And actually nobody called me Jesse in my neighborhood. They all called me Oakwood. That was the name of school. Cause it was weird. Oh, why, why you go to Oakwood? You don't go to Poughkeepsie high school with everybody else. Oh, what up Oakwood? What up Oakwood? Um, until I could hoop and people got to know me, that's what they called me. So I don't think that that, that article, the people who knew me would have been like, oh, no, he got that because he's that nerd. <laughs> oh, funny. Wait, so you, uh, I'll, I'll go a little journey here. You go to Yale, you work, you have a bunch of sort of internships, and then you start a gig at uh, the, the Detroit Bureau of the Associated yep. Press in 1992. How'd you get that job? And what did working for the Detroit Bureau of the Associated Press entail? I got an internship first, a summer internship in the Hartford Bureau of the Associated Press. Shout to my man, Andrew Frazier, who's still working in journalism. He was one of the editors who helped me out. And so, man, what it entailed, the great thing about the AP internships was you did everything that an AP employee did. So you worked on the desk, you rewrote stuff that came in, you went out and covered articles, you filed stuff, you worked on a real, AP was ahead of its time in terms of filing quickly. So it was like an internet speed pretty much. Um, and so it was the best foundation I could have in journalism because of the emphasis on speed and accuracy. Were you a fast writer before you got there? I have no idea. <laughs> I have right. no idea, yeah. but I got fast real quick and I got sloppy a little bit. So when I got to the Detroit Bureau of the Associated Press in 92, Paula Froke had to take me aside a couple of times and talk to me very sternly and perhaps issue some veiled threats because there were mistakes creeping into my like little sloppy mistakes. And it was made clear to me, either explicitly or implicitly, that if you continue to make these mistakes, you ain't going to be working here very long. Do you remember a mistake you made? No, I blocked them out because yeah. they were I made about three of them in the first couple of weeks and then I didn't make any more. Um, but I got to write features. I got to write. You worked on the broadcast desk. So you wrote the scripts that they read on the radio. Um, I worked editing shifts where I had to watch TV and get the lottery numbers off the television and send those out, which was a probably the most important and well-read thing that I did. Um, 
oh, I covered Dr. Death, Dr. Kevorkian. So he was knocking people off. Him and his lawyer, Jeffrey Feiger, um, were putting people out of their misery. And uh, that was a big national story. So I got to cover some of them. So breaking news, features, editing, the the best basic journalism training you could get. That's what I did at the at the AP in Detroit Bureau in 92. You know, it's funny, years and years ago, like years ago, I was offered a job at the AP. And I thought, I think I would find it frustrating not being able to be super creative. Is that something at the AP? Is it frustrating to not, or were you not at that point yet where you felt comfortable being creative? I didn't really know what it meant. Um, and there were two things really, you know, we talk about these rap magazines. So that was where I was creative. But when I was in college, I became a DJ and I, and I got pretty good. So I was DJing parties up and down the East Coast, lots of people there making two, three, five, six hundred dollars a night. And it was fun. And so I really, this was when the Source magazine had just started up in the 80s. Forget the New York Times, I wanted to write for the Source. And so that was where I started to express some of that. And then I came across a column in the Detroit News uh, in 92 or so. And uh, my man, my brother, fine journalist by the name of Daryl Dawsey, had a column in the Detroit News and it was called Buck Wyland, B-U-C-K, next word, W-H-Y-L-I-N apostrophe. And they had a picture of De- of Daryl, like a full cutout silo of him, like in this pose. And I, and, it, and there's a black man, Buck Wild in the newspaper. And he wrote with such style and authenticity and personality that something clicked. And I was like, oh, wow, I could actually be myself on the page. All the people who I had read up to then, like the great Ralph Wiley. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in an advanced you know, state of understanding journalism enough yet to really appreciate how much of himself was in those Sports Illustrated features. I didn't connect with any of the other great SI writers of the time. You know, I would read Frank DeFord. He had a lot of personality in there and his own style and voice, but I didn't really know what it was because it was so removed from my own experience, I guess, or maybe just because it didn't connect with who I was as a young black man. So Daryl Dawsey was the person who, and I didn't know him, I just read him in the paper. And also these guys who were writing in the Source magazine, you know, back then, um, you know, Reggie Dennis, James Bernard, Rob Marriott, Bones Malone. These were guys my age who liked the things that I liked, who had voice. And that was when I started to say, okay, I can do that. But I, I didn't, you know, it never really crossed my mind to try it at the AP. I was just like, yeah, I want to rock with the Source and do what they do. So, you know, a lot of us black people in this, we code switch a lot. So I think I journalistically code switched for a long time. Wait, I have a weird question or maybe not weird, but I don't think I've thought of it in this regard. So when I was growing up, Sports Illustrated was a Bible, right? To me, it was a Bible. Me too. And right. But being like a white kid in male pack, New York, I never thought to myself, well, this magazine doesn't really speak to me, right? This doesn't speak to my sensibilities or my environment mm-hmm. or whatever, because why would I? I was a white kid in rural New York. Were you aware when you were a kid or a young man reading Sports Illustrated, these are white writers who are not covering sort of African-American athletes and Latin American athletes in a sort of diverse way? Or were you just a young guy reading a magazine, maybe yawning at some of the articles? I was such a voracious reader that I didn't yawn, but I didn't know. I wasn't exposed to anything that spoke to me. So I knew that it was great. Sports Illustrated was great. It was great, man. And I enjoyed it for what it was. And I devoured every issue. My grandparents would buy me magazine subscriptions. So I had Sports Illustrated. I had National Geographic. When I was younger, I had Ranger Rick. 
you know, um, yeah. they stole mail out of in the project. So we would, it would get delivered up to uh, the post office and I would go up there and get my magazines and stuff. So I just love to read. So I wasn't aware that this stuff, Daryl Dossie is the one, you know, the source magazine was, oh, wow, there's this whole other way. Like there's, there's black people writing things. Like, I think I knew that Ralph Wiley was black and I started to look for his byline. And there were certain writers that I, you know, I started to understand the difference in the voice and things like that and started to differentiate the writers. And, and I think I knew Phil Taylor was black. Um, and, you know, I remember vividly the first issue of Sports Illustrated that I got. And every week I read that thing, every word. Yeah. You know, Tom Cousineau was of the Cleveland Browns linebacker was the first on the cover of the first issue I ever got. So I can picture that cover in my head because I, like you, am a loser. <laughs> right. I know exactly that cover. Yeah. Yeah. We're nerds, man. We're journalism nerds. So, man, it, it's like, but also black culture was not what it was in the, in the 80s. It's so different now. And like, I'm glad, but I'm sad at the same time because a lot of it has been taken over and gentrified and watered down. Like, even the fact that we, the Source magazine existed and these other magazines existed, to put our great musicians on the cover because they wouldn't be on people or GQ or Esquire or even on, you know, get covered in these, in these things. So it took me a while to really, to figure out that I wasn't the target audience. And even to just understand there was something out there. It's hard to explain how deep of a chord the Source magazine struck in me when I first started reading it. It was like some sort of ancestral call to my <laughs> like. It was just so organic and so me, and I finally understood what I had been been really missing. One thing that's really interesting that I was unaware of for years, probably until late in my SI career, is the impact that Ralph Wiley had on a lot of young aspiring black writers. To me, he was just another writer at SI like a great writer. They were all great. The writers there were great. But the number of people who say you read now who are like Ralph Wiley, Ralph Wiley, Ralph Wiley. It's pretty dramatic, his impact. It's huge. And the other one that I want to mention who I read and I knew he was a black person was Bill Roden at the New York Times. Yeah. You know, and Bill, you know, you knew Bill was black because he wrote about black things, yep. you know, um, and uh, but his style was, you know, it was times the end and it was great. But it wasn't. But Bill is of a different generation of black man than than I am, and so it's it was it was more jazz than hip hop. Right. Um, but no, Ralph is is uh, Ralph might be one of the best to ever do a period in that man. Just amazing. I did get to meet and talk to him a couple times, um, but never had any like significant interactions with him. Maybe Jeff, one of the reasons that you don't re realize uh, his impact on us is because there were so few of them. You know, there were so few black people who got these opportunities to write at the quote unquote highest level. The ones who did get there had to be just stupendously talented. You know, there were no average black guys getting there was a lot of average Sports Illustrated had a lot of great writers. They had a lot of average ones, too. Let's be real. Who got these opportunities, you know, however they got them. They knew the right people um, and checked the right boxes. So for Ralph to get there, man, he had to be special. And he was. So I got to SI in 96. I think I was promoted to senior writer in maybe 98. And when you became a writer, every Christmas they'd have like a state of SI. This is when magazines were rolling in money and they'd fly all the writers in and uh, they'd have a, a meeting with all the writers. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in this room and it was Phil Taylor was the only African-American writer, like literally one. 
Kelly Anderson, the only woman writer, literally one. And I remember I actually asked, you could ask questions. And I asked, are they working to diversify the staff? And the editor's <laughs> reply was, we've looked around. We haven't found any black writers who really belong or are good enough. But if you know of anyone, we'll take suggestions. Oh and God. I was like, you must be fucking kidding me. And that was oh like real, God. like. Well, big up to you for asking the question. And um, I mean, I had my first job in journalism in the summer of 87, as you uh, unearthed with that marvelously written clip. Um, and many, many times I've been the only black person in the room at a lot of jobs that I've had. And so, uh, but I think that, you know, I'm really encouraged by where we are in, in journalism now and in sports journalism and, and just across the board. Uh, a lot of black voices, a lot of diverse voices, period. It's not that we've gotten to the point where we need to be, but it's so much better than when I was growing up. And, uh, and I'm glad for that. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's packed up and about to return to college after a long winter break. Before I go, I have something to say. Okay. For six years, I've been doing these ads. First, five with you sports, now Royal Retros. I've slaved over every word. I've worked with a vocal coach, studied diction with a Shakespearean scholar, traveled near and far to chronicle thread count, sports trademarks, industry standards, and what has it gotten me besides endless visits to royalretros.com and hundreds of appearances on your crap podcast? I talked to Royal Retros, and they're sending you a new Las Vegas Thunder jersey. The black and aqua one? Yep. It's been worth every minute. 96, you leave the AP, become the managing editor of Vibe, which is a huge deal and a huge Yes, sir. And for people who don't know, like younger journalists who weren't around then or doing, there was really this time, Source, Vibe, Double XL, Blaze, like there's some hugely influential, fantastic magazines. Um, How'd you get that job? Like, how'd you go from AP to Vibe? That's a huge, interesting jump. I had freelance for Vibe and for for the Source for a long time because that was what I really, you know, I wanted to like, I was a DJ, there was this culture and it was very much, you know, hip hop was us versus them. It wasn't mainstream, it wasn't respected, white people hated it, they said rap's not music. And so, um, and you know, it was a big part of my identity and who I was and all that kind of stuff. So I always wrote pieces for them and stuff like that. And I had written some pieces for Vibe. And so they knew who I was, they knew, by this point I was a, you know, I was like a, I had an administrative position I was an editor on the AP's national desk and I was assistant bureau chief in New York City. So I was like, you know, I had people who reported to me um, and things like that. So they knew I could administrate and they needed a managing editor. And Keith Klinkscale sort of got my name and and decided to hire me. Did it live up to what you wanted it to be? Yeah, it did. I mean, it was great. And, uh, you know, I wanted to work with black people, man. I was tired of going. I was tired of getting stopped at the entrance to 50 Rockefeller on my way into the overnight shift at the Associated Press and them asking, what are you doing here? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And I developed this weird thing where I would deliberately dress in a way that I knew would get people to give me a second glance. So I would come to work wearing shorts and and t-shirts with like Afrocentric stuff written on it and then walk through and deliberately not look at the security guard and make them say, excuse me, where are you going? You know, (laughs) like, so I wanted to work with black people. I wanted to write about hip hop. The culture was exploding. I wanted to, you know, to do those kind of things and I wanted to be a part of it. And so it did live up to it. I got to work with some great people, some really talented people, some of the biggest stories ever. 
Um, and you know, the journalism was great. The journalism was just outstanding. I learned how to be a magazine editor from the great Rob Kenner and Carter Harris, two white guys, ironically, who worked at Vibe, but were totally qualified to be there and did some terrific work. Uh, those two, along with the, uh, the fantastic journalist and writer and thinker Rob Marriott, solved the Tupac killing in real time. Like, go back and look at the issue. They told you everything that happened about wh who killed him and why. Right. So that was the type of work that was getting done. It was creative. It was fun. It was wild. And so it, it definitely lived up to it. Interesting enough. So Vibe magazine was sort of launched um, by Quincy Jones. Right. And it was it was considered this Bible, this voice of the culture and all that. But it was launched by Time Inc. And it was really a super duper white publication for a long time, including well after I got there. Um, Alan Light was the editor when I got there. Alan's a tremendously talented music journalist, you know, well qualified but a white guy, you know, and the majority of the senior editors were white. And the craziest thing was that the editorial director was the legendary Sports Illustrated guy, Gil Rogan. And, and when I got there on the managing editor, so I got to get everything in and, and they said, okay, every article, when it comes out of the fact, out of the fact checking department, print it out and fax it to this number. I said, who's that? They said, Gil Rogan. I said, who the hell is Gil Rogan and what is he doing? This man top edited every single piece at 70 something year old, white Jewish guy, rest his soul, vigorously top edited Vibe magazine when I got there, vigorously. I'm talking about, you know, having those kind of questions that you're, that, you know, hip hip or hip hop that you, um, until Danielle Smith became the editor and iced him out of that loop. So uh, that was a, a, a little bit fun fact from the Vibe history archives. Wait, I wanna ask about that. So you're, you're at this magazine. Yeah. It's gray magazine. Yeah. But sitting on top is Gil Rogan. And sitting yes. on top of Gil Rogan is this magazine that's run by probably 99.9% .9 white men. No, Bob Miller had bought it by then. So Bob Miller was a Time Inc. executive and, and his he's famous for coming up with the idea for the swimsuit issue or or if not coming up with it, then certainly running it. And, you know, made Time Inc. billions of dollars, decide to go out on his own and get a couple of publications and, and have his own magazine publishing company. And so Vibe was one of the magazines that he bought from uh, from Time Inc. to start his own empire. So a white guy owned it and ran it and his editorial director to keep watch of all the, the Negroes out in the field was Gil Rogan. How did that impact the actual magazine? Terribly. <laughs> How so? I, man, I wish I could have a, 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 an exact example. It was just Gil would have these questions about, well, why are you saying it like this and the headline should be that? And it's like, dude, you don't know because hip hop, that's why. You know, right. there's there's one that the young there's a phrase of the young kids because hip hop. That's why you just don't get it and you won't. Now let's fast forward. It had an effect on me when I was editor of Blaze magazine because I wrote an editorial about something that they uh, that that touched them personally and they were offended and embarrassed by it. Wait, and, what was that? So that was when the CEO of Time Warner, Time yeah, Time Warner was Gerald Levin, mm -hmm. and his son was tragically murdered, senselessly murdered. And it just so happened that my college roommate's cousin was arrested for the crime and acquitted for the crime. And at the time he was acquitted of the crime, we were preparing a whole issue of Blaze magazine called Generation Lockdown, which was exploring the relationship between hip hop and the criminal justice system. And then, oh, my homeboy, who I had hung out with and, and, and all these kind of things, is arrested and then acquitted in the highest profile murder in New York City in years. 
And so I wrote about it and it was embarrassing to, to Gil and to Bob. And we had big fights and arguments as a result of which I flipped out and got fired. So that's what ended it. That's exactly what ended it. And I deserved it. Cause I was, I, cause you know, I was like, wait a minute, you're telling me like what, like you're making an editorial decision just because it embarrasses you. Like you can't do that. Church and state. Like this is the idea, you know, I was a hardcore on principle journalist saying the owner does not get to decide what is printed in the magazine. Uh, so I, I was also very naive. The realization that you can't just write whatever you want, even if you know you're right, that there is someone above you. And in this case, sort of older white guys who are going to be like, no, you can't, you can't, you can't. Is that sort of a deflation of here you are, you're at this magazine. It's a powerful magazine. It's representing black people in America. It's writing about things that black people have not read in this country. But at the end of the day, there's a white guy overlording it. That must be like a major pin in a balloon. It was, but it was the best lesson I could have because I've been able to recognize that situation, see that situation coming so many times since then in my career, and then have been able to navigate it more successfully. The most recent time it happened to me was this. Uh, the NBA was involved in this big brouhaha with uh, uh, China over the comments that the guy down in Dallas made, and there's this big uproar, and the NBA is, you know, is heading over to play some games in China. And I said, I wonder what LeBron is going to say about this. And when he got there, his comments were disappointing. So I wrote a column that said, I'm disappointed in LeBron for his comments because he didn't, you know, he avoided the issue. And in writing this column, I, you know, you have to say what China's doing. Now, at the time where the undefeated, undefeated is owned by ESPN. ESPN does tons of business in China. Uh, ESPN is owned by Disney. Disney does tons of business in China. So I wrote this column with the knowledge that it might not ever see the light of day, you know, but credit to my, my boss at the time, Kevin Merida, got the story published and we worked it through and it was published in a really strong form. We didn't have to dumb it down at all. The end of that story is Bob Iger came to visit us and defeated and I thanked him for running the column. And he said, yeah, that came across my desk before it was published. And I said to myself, I've worked for 16 years to open Disneyland in Shanghai and some guy from the undefeated is going to mess it all up. <laughs> wow. That's funny. <laughs> yeah. But uh, to get back to your original question, yeah, you had to learn how thing really works and that there's usually a white owner, a white guy, a white hedge fund at the top of the food chain. And you got to operate under those circumstances and still be successful and still be true to yourself with your journalism. Is it hard to navigate that? Like for young journalists coming along, and the young journalist is like, I'm just going to write whatever I want or, you know, fuck the man or blah, blah, blah. Like, what are you supposed yes. to do? What are yeah, you supposed that, to do? Because that was me. That was me. That's why I got fired from Blaze Magazine. And mind you, at this time, man, like I was somewhat well known. I was on Hot 97 with Funkmaster Flex. I'm on TV. It was I was in the headlines. And so me getting fired was a was a humiliation, you know, and it was because I had that exact attitude. And so, you know, you just got to grow up sometimes and, and, and understand the world for what it is. It does suck, you know, but the world doesn't always operate on principles. You know, the world operates on money and power, you know, and, and that's what we're, you know, supposed to be here to expose as journalists. So once you understand that, it's kind of like when you write a story, Jeff, and you know what all the objections are going to be to the story ahead of time. So you counteract them in whatever it is that you're writing. You know, if you can have that knowledge with the way that the media works, then then you can be more successful than if you just go and bang your head up against the wall and say, F the man, these are the principles of journalism that I'm going to live and die by because you will die by them. 
I'm sure you and I were similar. Like you come up, like when I was a young writer at the Tennessean, I was 100% fuck my editors. I don't need this. I don't need that. I know what I'm doing. You guys don't know what you're doing. And a lot of times looking back, I actually was right. But then later on sort of changed my behavior a little bit to make sure my stuff would wind up in the newspaper. But I did feel like I was selling out to my principles a little bit. I never fully knew how to reconcile that. Yeah. I don't think any of us do. You know, you get used to it. And I was so hardcore uh, on a mission and a jihad and a crusade and, and all that stuff, man, just in terms of these are the principles that, that we must abide by. Um, and I was right in principle. But if you're right in principle, but then practically it screws you up and you, and you can't do what you need to do, you can't get the messages out that you need to get out, then what have you really gained? Um, so it's a complicated thing. And I think there's a spectrum of rightness and wrongness. And, and we each have to, as journalists, figure out what we're comfortable with. So you mentioned you were the editor-in-chief of Blaze, which is a Vibe spinoff. You wrote an editorial describing how Wyclef threatened you with a gun over a negative album review. How many times have you told this story, would you say, if you had to guesstimate in your life? More or less than a <laughs> Not- thousand. Uh, less definitely and not recently no i'm good man it was an it was a it was quite an experience so blaze got started in this atmosphere there was all these other magazines xxl had come out and was killing the game xxl was great and so there's competition how are you going to be different and one of the ways you're going to be different so let's back up to that point where i said that there were not a lot of black senior editors at vibe when i got there it was me and sheena lester i believe who were the who were the the main two black editors and Rappers would be mad about reviews and they would call the office and I was usually the guy who talked to them. You know, they would call. And then a lot of times in these conversations, they sort of had a point. Like someone would critique their album, making a certain point uh, about what they thought that the artist was trying to do. He's like, man, I wasn't even trying to do that. So I said to myself with Blaze, wouldn't it be interesting if we let that artist respond to negative reviews and we'll print them side by side. That'll be cool. Wait, I just want to say that's an amazing idea. That is a great idea. Thank you. Yeah. I had a few. Um, I'm proud of the work that we did at Blaze. And a lot of people that I work with had great ideas too. So we did that. And then there was a highly anticipated album that by Cannabis that Clef was producing and the album sucked. And we sent over a negative review and said, hey, comment on that. And then he threatened the guy who wrote it. Um, and then I said, well, let's go talk about it. And so, cool. We went to the Hit Factory and we walked past all the Michael Jackson plaques and all that and past the security cameras and we go and sit down. And there's Clef and um, and some notorious gangsters um, who was introduced to me as he never killed somebody who didn't deserve it. And then they start trying to punk me out of running the review. And they're like, yeah, we got this nerd, this Yale nerd would be projects, you know, kid in here who thinks he's hip hop and we're going to punk him out of running the review. And they started to cajole and threaten and all this kind of stuff. And at one point, uh, Clef leaves the room and comes back and he puts a gun down on the table. And then he starts talking some more. And Oh, and he had a tape recorder. <laughs> so he, and he's trying to tell me and I'm sort of resisting. And I had one or two of my guys there with me, whatever. And then finally, um, he picks it up and points it at me. And then there was some yelling and shouting and then things calmed down and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and that was what happened. So I decided to to write about it. And I put it in the in the premiere issue and was immediately accused by Wyclef of making it up for, to sell more copies. Now I will say that since then Clef and I, you know, some months after that, we, we squashed it and everything. So no hard feelings. He was just trying to save his terrible production on the cannabis album. Um, and uh, side note that I'll finish with, I chose to put 
cannabis, who, as we can see, is, you know, gone on to have the career that he has. I chose to put him on on this little uh, to give him a feature spot rather than a young artist who I really wasn't feeling named DMX. So great news judgment there. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wait, I have some questions here. Number one, the gun is pulled out. This is not the experience I've had. What are you thinking when this is going on? What I'm not thinking is that I'm about to get shot. Number one is Wyclef, right? He's not like that. Number two, I'm in the hit factory. If I was in some unknown, like I just walked in, I, I signed my name and checked in. So like, <laughs> you know, if they're going to get me, it's not going to be here. So I wasn't worried about getting shot, but I'm like, yo, you really, you violate it, man. You disrespect it. What are you doing? Like, put that thing down. That shit is dangerous. You know, what are you doing? Come on, man. Like, yo, chill. You know, I'm thinking, oh, y'all are trying to play me. Like y'all are really trying to play me. And I think in the back of my mind, you know, my weapon is the is the keyboard and the pen. And so I think at, it didn't take me long to be like, oh, okay, yeah. It's like when you have an interview with somebody and then and then uh, they don't say it's off the record and they just say st- and do stupid things like you with John Rocker, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you weren't, you know, like, hey, man, we're journalists. It happened right in front of me. I'm going to write about it. All right, so I don't fully understand how one can have a gun pulled on him. <laughs> And then make peace with the guy. Like, I'm a very peaceful guy, and I believe in sort of, you know, reconciliation. Because it was a show. He was putting on an act. He was putting on an act for me. And these guys, you have to understand a lot of times, like, um, these rappers, and I've dealt with a lot of rappers, a lot of it is persona. Right. And they've convinced themselves of this persona. You have a persona to sell records. Rap is one of the the genres where, you, you know, what sells is the image in addition to the music and who people perceive you to be. And also this was in the, you know, we, we've come through this era of keeping it real and all these debates that we have within the culture about that. So like, um, I knew that he was, he was uh, putting on a, he was putting on a show for some of the, the people who were in the room, his people, he was putting on a show for the source magazine. I was at the rival magazine. The source guys were in another room. So he was over there like, yeah, watch me go punk this nigga Jess, you know? So, and and then again, man, like I've made a lot of dumb mistakes in my life. So later we when we talked, it was like, yo, my bad, man. Like I messed up. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, I knew you weren't gonna shoot me anyway. You know. Cool. It is what it is. Is it true now you're the world's biggest Wycliffe fan? <laughs> I wish he was he's talented, but he hasn't I haven't none of his music has come across my radar that's really vibe with me. But now nah, he he was definitely I was not DJing any Wyclef songs for quite some time after that. That's facts. I, I had the carnival I'm play on a, on a shuffle for quite a bit. I got to say back when it came out. <laughs> that was I. I mean, the, the you know the Fuji's work was stellar. The score yeah. was stellar, but his production on this cannabis album was really ill fitted to the to the grimy underground type music that the lyrics that that and style and aesthetic that cannabis had. So it was just a mismatch, man. His stuff was too pop for him, and everybody knew it, you know, but. Interesting episode. May 5th, 2000, New York Times, Blaze Magazine ends publication. It started with such a bang and it only lasted about two years. Could the magazine have lasted two decades or was this a sort of ill-conceived sort of concept? Mm, no, it couldn't have lasted two decades. It was a. It was like, a, and without going too far into the weeds, which would be its own podcast, um, you know, this is the thing about it. When I went over to work, I left the Associated Press and, and went to Vibe. And then when they said, we're going to start Blaze Magazine, I thought it was journalism. And it was to a certain extent, but it's more the music industry. 
And success or failure is predicated on what's going on in the music industry and not really the journalism aspect of it. It's to all the ads are bought and sold based on relationships within the music industry, which naturally influences the coverage. So if you write this, then we're not going to get that ad. Or if you get this cover, you know, you, you have to, to sell copies. You got to get the hot artist on the cover to get the hot artist on the cover. You got to hire them to do this. So there's too much money changing hands between the people who are not, but yes, they're, they're your boss. And so I don't think that it would have lasted for 20 years. And these magazines had their time in the sun. You know, it was before the internet. This is how people found out if you lived in Little Rock, Arkansas or Poughkeepsie, New York or Mayo Pack, you know, then this is how you found out what was popping in hip hop at the time. Um, and, and it was an era where celebrities needed publicity more than they do now. So I think it had its moment in the sun. It was conceived as a way to help Vibe grow up and become a, a, a different magazine than what it was and what the editor of Vibe, Danielle, wanted it to be. And so, uh, and it was an era when Black people didn't get on the cover of magazines. Halle Berry wasn't going to be on the cover of magazine. Shaq wasn't going to be on the cover of magazine, um, except, you know, that, that's the sports magazine, but not in a cultural sense. Nowadays, you got Black athletes all over the covers of these magazines and stuff. So it was a different time. We gentrified ourselves out of that era. And again, it's a good thing that black culture is more widely accepted, but it's also more watered down. And so it was a time it had a good run. There's a hip hop artist. I really like great guy named Glasses Malone who's out here in Southern California. And I had him on the podcast a few weeks ago. And I was saying like, for me, growing up in small bumblefuck town, right? Hip hop, hip hop magazines were an incredible educator. I'm sure your goal wasn't at the time was, and I really want to educate the white kids in Mayo Pack, New York about hip hop, but <laughs> it really did and exposed a lot of kids to things they didn't see and didn't know and didn't hear, which is valuable. But the offshoot of that is it did water it down to a certain degree because all of a sudden these white kids in Mayo Pack are saying like, yo, that's dope. You know, and like, <laughs> it's right. a, I'm sure you weren't thinking about it at the time, but do you feel like that sort of watering down has caused harm to the culture? I don't know. And I struggle with it now. I get mad when I like uh, I get mad at sneaker culture now because everybody's up on it, you know, and if a middle aged white anchor on Sports Center is wearing Jordans, is that going to be cool? To, like, how is that going to be cool to me? Right. You know, like it's not I right. Like and so so I think it's a double edged sword because then, you know, and it, it applies to hip hop and black culture at large. It's always been at the cutting edge of cool. And these things have always been absorbed into the mainstream. And that's what we want, but it's what we don't want, you know. And, and I think the way I would like to see it turn out is that it is appreciated and respected, but not, um, but the creators of it still respected as the arbiters, I can't pronounce that word, but you know, like um, just sort of know your role, stay in your lane, enjoy it, appreciate it. No cultural appropriation, you know, don't be white rock and cornrows, you know, like <laughs> things like that. Um, but I have a lot of, I don't really know, man, as you can see by this garbled answer, like I'm still struggling with it at, at a time when I've come, hip hop is about to be 50 years old. Yeah. Next August 23rd, August 23rd, 2023 is the 50th anniversary of the of the house party, the, the block party, the, the rec room party, to be most accurate, thrown by Cool Herc in the South Bronx. That marks the official start of hip hop. And, you know, I started to listen to hip hop 
you know, I was four and 73, so I've been here for most of it. And to see it gone from hated to embraced and watered down is like an amazing experience and perspective. And I'm glad that it is where it is. It, it's, some of it is better, some of it is worse. I don't know, man. Terrible answer, but a great question. I mean, it is really remarkable. I just want to say like my first two concerts ever were the Go-Go's in Chicago. My son first two concerts were J. Cole and Kendrick Lamar. Right. <laughs> right. It's amazing. Right. It's amazing. That's exact. That sums it up right there, you know, yeah. and uh, and that's cool, man. More people. Ex the music is for everybody. Yeah. You know, everybody should be able to enjoy it. But, uh, you know, I doubt that your sons are what used to be known as wiggers. And as long as they're not, then welcome. You know, you, then everybody's welcome. Wait, it's crazy. I haven't thought of that word. I got that word. Like, just by liking Public Enemy in Mayo Pack, New York. Oh, what are you trying to be? You know, like. Right. You're right. That doesn't exist anymore. I don't think that exists anymore, at least not in my kid's circle. I'm and sure it does exist And somewhere. that's a good thing. And that's a good thing, man. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, the, the world is so different. I mean, interracial relationships are so different now. You know, you, you got many, many more of those, more children of interracial relationships. The whole dynamic is different. And so for someone like me who spent their career, you know, uh, delving into these issues of race and culture and music and sports because the cultural aspect you know is is such a heavy part of sports due to the black athlete it's just provided me with a lot of fascinating things to write about and to talk about and to and to ponder and uh and who knows what's going to happen next man like the next I, I might have another couple decades in this and and i'm looking forward to see how that goes down i'm going to throw a loaded question at you please do okay in 2015, you come to ESPN and you help launch the Undefeated. The first editor of the Undefeated is Jason Whitlock. Jason Whitlock breaks my heart. I don't know if I'm misguided or what. I'll give you my two-second synopsis here. Jason Whitlock, at one point in time, he and Joe Posnancy were the lead sports columnists in Kansas City. And they were a freaking badass one-two sports columnist tandem. that They really were. And whether you liked Whitlock's takes or disagreed, He's one of the most influential sports columnists in America. He was important, an important black voice in America. At one point, I would argue he was one of the five biggest sports columnists in America. And he was damn good. I object to anyone who says, oh, this guy can't write. I'm always like, no, this guy can write. Yes. And to see him go to outkick the coverage, to see him defending Trump, to see him interviewing Trump and just like licking his boots, it fucking crushes my soul. It actually crushes my soul. It hurts me. It pains me to see anything that guy tweets or puts out. And I wonder, like, in 2015, you're at the undefeated. You start there. Whitlock is in charge. And you're like, oh, this is great. Jason Whitlock, this is going to be wonderful. Now, let me tell you the story. Let me tell you the story. Okay. So uh, I sought out Jason Whitlock. I was at Vibe in 98. And Danielle Smith says, yo, Allen Iverson had a crazy rookie season. Danielle Smith was one of the greats in our in our business because she had her – she just knew – where things were going and she had this innate sense of culturally what's popping and what's next she's one of the goats yeah. and so um danielle was like yo jess man we need we need the iverson feature in this next issue make it happen i was danielle's managing editor so i was like all right who am i going to get to write it and i and i had been reading jason whitlock jason whitlock i was like yo he's, he's got something like this dude is different and i always try to go to this day try to you know put more people on like, don't just go to the same 
going to the same usual people when you want to hire somebody is what excludes black people from everything. So I was like, yeah, Jason, you want to do this Allen Iverson profile. And Jason was very enamored with the idea of writing for Vibe. Like that was a big thing for him to do. So, um, so the thing I appreciate about Jason is he was a, Jason's a reporter and a journalist. So, so I didn't, he's just like, all right, I'm gonna go to training camp. And he, and the whole time he's like, yeah, AI is ducking me. He don't want to talk. You don't want to talk. Then Whitlock calls me up and says, yo, Jess, you'll never believe what happened. My hotel room, I'm staying. Another thing I appreciate about his journalism chops is he stayed in the same hotel as the players, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so he's like, my, my room is by the, the elevator and I'm in my room and you know how AI has this distinctive voice. I hear AI talking at the elevator with stack out. I can't remember who was on the team stack or whatever. And he's talking shit about Michael Jordan. And he's saying how he's going to bust Michael Jordan's ass to the next time I see this motherfucker, I'm gonna give him 50. I'm like, yo, Jason, you gotta be kidding me. And he's telling me the whole story. And I'm like, are you for real, Jason? Are you sure? Like, are you sure? And he says, am I sure? And he plays his tape recorder into the phone. He had whipped out his tape recorder and tape recorded it through the door. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So boom. So he writes the story and he sends it in. And that anecdote is at the end. I'm like, nah, dog, that's the lead. That's the lead. So he he rewrites it. And he says to me, Jesse, you're the first editor I had in my career who made a story better. So that's something that you and Jason Whitlock have in common there, Jeff. Uh, and, And thus our relationship was born. The story was great. And we had a professional relationship where we would like talk once in a while on the phone and correspond and, hey, what's up? You know, we didn't hang out or anything like that. Um, and uh, I, I'm not even sure if I met him in person, but, you know, it was a, you know, we respected each other's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jason is a very collaborative person. He would call me to bounce ideas around. I remember telling him, hey, man, you got to read this book, The New Jim Crow. You know, I think it'll really make you think about some of the things that you write about in a different way, blah, blah, blah. He loved the book. So then one day I'm sitting there on Grantland on my phone, reading Grantland, and the phone rings and it's Whitlock. And he says, ESPN has hired me to run to start the black Grantland. You're the first person I'm calling. Wow. And I said, oh, I'm reading the white Grantland right now. Uh, (laughs) And then I started helping him. And then he was like, I want you to come over here and I want you to work here. And I said, no, I don't want to do that because at the time I was working for the Associated Press and I was writing, uh, I I had the, the race and ethnicity beat. And this was in 08 maybe, oh, well, no, 14th, probably, it was before all of the, every major outlet had five people covering race. Like I was one of the only people on the race beat at a major publication. So it was, it was, I guess we were into the first Obama presidency, something like that. I don't know the timing, but I was like, nah, I don't want to do it because I don't just want to write about sports. Like I like sports and everything, but like, I'm finally doing something. I feel like I have more meaning and purpose. I already did these rap magazines and stuff like that. I want to do something with more meat. And he said, no, all the stuff you write about now, you could write about at this site. So then I said, yes, and I did it. And so I was in on the ground floor with Jason. He came, I was, the day he came up with the name of the undefeated was the day Maya Angelou died. And he texted me the, her undefeated poem and said, the name of the shite should be the undefeated. And I was like, wow, that's a great title. Great. Still miss it. So then, you know, that's how that happened. So I did think it was good. Now I knew that he was a little off. I knew that he was uh, he was not yet full blown trumped out. He was more conservative than your average black media person. And I phrase that in a particular way. Black people are more conservative than you would know by reading what's published in all the, sure. you know, the prestige papers and what you see on TV. Um, black people are rather conservative socially. And Jason fit into that. 
Um, I knew he was, you know, had this weird personality. I knew he had never run anything before, but I'm not scared of you. I'm your, you know, we're peers. I'll stand up to anybody. So I was like, all right, let's do it. So what happened? <laughs> so <laughs> I was waiting for the follow-up. Um, the short version of it is this. Many people felt Jason should not have that job. And in retrospect, they were probably right. And it hurts my heart to say this, that they were probably right. Many people felt that he should not have that job. And then I believe that there was probably, you know, there were a lot of people who said, well, we're going to try to see to it that he loses that job. And he had a very narrow margin for error and he exceeded it. So he would have had to do everything perfect to hold on to that job because he had a lot of people who wanted to see him lose it uh, within ESPN and outside of ESPN. Now, um, the the series of stories in Deadspin that were done, I think, um, were, are not journalistically defensible. Um, but he made too many mistakes, and that's what ended up causing him his job. I recall one time he gave this, you know, he was he had never managed anybody before. And so he sort of did it like a football coach. You know, and he's, he's big on his football experience is so formative to his identity, and he had all these coaches. So as a, as, a, as a manager and a leader, he did it like a football coach. So one day he gave us all a speech and then, you know, on, on our conference call or whatever. And then afterwards he called me up and said, what do you think? I said, well, yeah, I mean, I got it, Jason, but if that ever gets out, you're in big trouble. And it got out. <laughs> and that was one of the, that was one of the nails in his coffin. Um, you know, just if I could take a moment to say, and I guess Deadspin is different management now, and they went out of business because they mm. got sued for that other bad stuff they did. But but the, some of the things that they did were really despicable. And if you call yourself reporting on on this, you know, this organization, the Undefeated, and what Jason Whitlock is doing, and there's six people who work there at the uh, Undefeated at that time. So I know for a fact you never called me for anything. Right. And I know for a fact that there's at least one other person who never got a call from you. So you're not going to call all six people to try and get some information and some pers perspective among other journalistic transgressions. That's, it just really goes to show, um, you know, how scurrilous those pieces were, but those were probably the gasoline and the engine that got on fire. And, and Jason and I remained friends after that um, until he was uh, not enamored with some of my feedback that I gave him on some of his work, which he sought for me. So I called Jason every, every time I sign a new contract with, uh, with ESPN and Anscape, I leave Jason a message and say, hey, man, I appreciate you bringing me over here, man. I just got paid again. Um, good looking out. Uh, thank you for recognizing my talent. And, and I hope that you're doing well. And um, the last thing I'll say about Whitlock is what I told him. He was one of the earlier victims of one of these sort of social media lynch mobs. Mm -hmm. And he didn't get lynched because he did it to himself. So some of it he deserved, but people were out to get him and there was a pile up and things like that. And I told him, I think that that really, I, I think that you were, you were scarred by that experience and that you're reacting to it because I saw him take a hard turn after he left here in terms of his, his way of thinking and things like that. Um, and he said, no, Jess, it, it sharpened me, you know? Wow. And so uh, nothing that I'm telling you here, uh, I don't believe in saying anything that I have not or would not say to somebody's face. I love Jason Whitlock as a black man. He is not the person that everybody thinks he is, but I think he's in a really tough space now and I am worried about him and, and that I, uh, I hope that he's going to be okay. Yeah, well said. Um, but I want to talk real quick about a, uh, you wrote a piece 
for Anscape. Uh, Deion Sanders' exit from Jackson State shows why HBCUs keep struggling. December 5th, 2022. It makes perfect sense that Deion Sanders high-stepped out of Jackson State over to Colorado. It's logical, and that's what makes it so sad. Colorado announced Saturday that Sanders, a.k.a. Coach Prime, who brought equal parts Bishop T.D. Jakes and Gucci Mane to the football coaching profession, will lead the Buffaloes program. Sanders is leaving historically black Jackson State University, where in three electric seasons, he brought in attention and relevance to HBCU sports that hadn't been seen since Steve McNair quarterback to Alcorn State 30 years ago. Um, and it's a really interesting piece about sort of Dion and how the weird and mixed emotions that a lot of people are feeling over him leaving Jackson State. How do you feel about Sanders leaving for Colorado? It makes me sad. And also, I think that there was always something about him and the things he said and how he carried himself publicly that got my spidey senses going. You know, we've been doing this long enough for sometimes you see a guy and you feel that they're super authentic. And sometimes you like, no, I need to pay closer attention. And so uh, I think there's a, you know, that was sort of the baseline for where I was at. And if you look at the things that he said when he got there, it, he, he said, God sent me here on a bigger mission than just winning football games. It's a, a mission to create change, you know, and that mission ain't done. That mission is not done. And it's a difficult mission to change the place of HBCUs in college sports is, is a really, is a really, it's a, it's a heavy lift, man. It takes more than, than three seasons. So I feel that he was not honest in what he was said he was there to do and how he went about leaving because the mission was really to get to the top level of college football. That was his mission. And if that's what you say and you live that, then I can respect that because here's the reason why we won't criticize the Saban or whoever else, because we know that's the mission. That's the deal with them. But it's part of the extra burden that black athletes and black coaches and successful black people in any field have is we have a responsibility to those who are left behind and who didn't get the opportunities that we have, who weren't lucky enough to know the advertising director at the Poughkeepsie Journal who could hook them up with the inside track for a job. Like we, we have that responsibility as um, black folks who have quote unquote made it. And so that's the lens that we come to, to Dion. That's the responsibility that whether he likes it or not, he has. And he leaned into that. And he said, I'm here for that. And it turns out, oh, you're just, you're just doing the football coach thing. Like you're just doing the climb the ladder thing, which is cool if A, you don't have this extra responsibility and B, you're just honest about what you're doing here. Yeah. You know, so, so, so that's how I sort of feel like, I feel that we, and particularly black journalists, have a responsibility to be really honest and hold these powerful black figures to account in a way that a, probably a white journalist can't. You know, man, I get, get, I get called the coon a thousand times a minute on social media anytime I'm critical of any black uh, athlete or figure, you know, but. We have to, if, if we as a community want to move forward, we have to be really honest with ourselves about what we're doing. So, you know, with Dion, man, he's just, he's, a, he's, he's doing the football coach thing. And that's cool. Just be honest with it, man. Just be real and transparent. And don't say you're here to save Jackson State and HBCU sports when really it's about Dion. 
this might be a weird thing for like a white Jewish writer to say, but watching him at his Colorado introductory press conference, surrounded by white people with the white athletic director praising how much he loved him. And it hurt my heart. Half these people would not want you dating their daughter. Like it's a guess, but like Mm. it kind of cut my heart out. And Dion, that's the come up. This white place is the come up when you had the best, you know, and I think I said it in the piece, but it's like the, this, this doormat white program with all its money and it's, it's better than the best black one with all the culture and history and, and, and all of that. Like that's the message that it sends. Um, you know, this is something that I didn't write and I didn't even post it, but the emotional feeling that it has for a lot of people in the black community is like, oh, you dump the black homecoming queen to go and date the blonde white girl. Not even the blonde white girl, just the regular schmegular white girl, right. you know, and I don't want to make it about looks and things because this whole thing, you know, but just like, that's really, you know, it, it's, um, you know, I, I feel like it was really unfortunate. How many black students do they have on a campus of 25,000, like 800? Like, wow, man, like it's so I'm disappointed. I am. Let me ask you a final question. We, uh, you and yeah. I have the same literary agent, David Black, the great David Black. Yes. And. When I pitched a Bo Jackson book, he actually referenced you. And he's like, he didn't love the Bo Jackson idea at first. He came around on it, but he was like, you know, Jesse Washington is a great writer and he's working with John Thompson. It's a great book and blah, blah, blah. And you think that way. <laughs> and obviously, it, you know, wound up being a great book. And so I, I was never doubting it, but he just would always reference you and John Thompson. So uh, the book is uh, I Came as a Shadow, John Thompson's autobiography with Jesse Washington, which, you know, means you interviewed him a bunch, I'm, I'm assuming, and sort of wrote. Um, I've never done this. What is it to write in the voice and write through another person um, as you did with a, a legendary sports figure like John Thompson? Right. Well, if it's John Thompson, then it's fantastic because John Thompson is one of the, like, talk about having a voice, but John Thompson is one of the most outspoken, unrepentant, wise, intelligent, speaking truth to power, motherfuckers who ever spoke into a microphone, like yeah. period. And I say motherfuckers and I'm in homage to John Thompson, because as he said in the book, some people said that was my favorite word. Um, and, uh, and so it was great because you're, you're, it's an act of humility, but you're giving life to him. You're giving to bring his voice to people who might never have heard it or who want to hear it again was a really special experience. And it's an act of service, man. That's what it is. You got to really humble yourself as a writer. We're all talk. We talked earlier about my voice, this, and my voice, that, and, 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 uh, and in this instance, you have to make it sound like them. And the trick to it is, and yes, I wrote, you know, I wrote every word in there after sitting down with coach Thompson and I had to write it like I think how he would want to say it. And once that clicked in, once he was like, yeah, boy, people say this sounds like me, then we're off to the races, you know? And then it, it really becomes a special experience because long story short, like, and for those of you who don't know John Thompson, like he took no shit from anybody and he would say what needed to be said, no matter the consequences, you know? Um, not that he was rash or popping off, but he was just fearless. So. To be able to to inhabit that mindset, man, I felt liberated. 
Yeah, it was great. You know, if I had to write the book for someone who was all buttoned up and worried about everything, it might be a different experience. So it was really special. Uh, the place that most young people don't understand, the place that John Thompson holds in, in black history and in black America as a hero. And I use that word so sparingly. I got the p- people who I would call real heroes, I can count on one hand. And he's one of them, man, for the arrows he took for black people, the way he uplifted us, the things he sacrificed in order for black people to get opportunities, not only in coaching, but corporate America. So um, it was a really special coincidence and fortunate series of events that got me to write that book. Well, I just want to say, Jesse, somewhere out there, Priscilla Kennedy of the Pine Plains High School Bombers, your first <laughs> subject of your first story, is very proud of you. She may not know that you went on to this journalistic career, but Priscilla Kennedy is out there. Somewhere. Oh, man. Shout to the Poughkeepsie Journal. All my PK fan, man. What a great place to start my career. I'm very thankful. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate you doing this. Seriously, this is an absolute pleasure. I love these conversations. and I, I really appreciate it. This was fun, Jeff. You're doing you're doing the Lord's work with this podcast um, and uh, keep it going, man. I want to thank today's guest, Jesse Washington, for joining me on Two Riders Slinging Yang. You can follow Jesse on Twitter at Jesse Washington and visit his website at jessewashington.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Slinging Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding. <laughs>